Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast, and uh, we were overdue for some uh, deep-seated rank wonkiness, uh, so I wanted to talk about a subject that I've been always sort of fascinated with, in part because of my upbringing, which we can talk about that in a little bit. So we have Stephen Ide, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to City Journal and for National Affairs. Do I have that right? No. No. How is it, how is it wrong? I... You're a contributor to National Affairs. I wrote something for National okay. Affairs once. <laughs> and a, a, uh, but a contributing editor to City Journal. Yes, that's right. Uh, okay. Which is the flagship magazine or journal of uh, the Manhattan Institute. And you wrote a really interesting article called How to Think About Homelessness. So why don't you give me – I mean, you didn't write a book, but my standard answer – my standard question for these kinds of things is what's your book about? Why don't we do what's your article about or what's your argument? Well, in my article, I talk about kind of how uh, the, what we call modern homelessness emerged. There's always been poverty. There has always been also um, the situation of kind of single men who have kind of behavioral health challenges who are – detached from society who are very poor. But this situation of modern homelessness, which is what most of us are familiar with, really emerged in the early 1980s. Um, in addition to problems, things like substance abuse, we ha- it has problems with mental illness, single parent families. So I go into the history of the problem and also talk about, you know, what it means to have a policy response to homelessness. In homelessness, circles, homelessness policy circles, in which um, progressives and progressive advocates really dominate the conversation, the solution is mostly permanent homeless, permanent housing. The solution Mm -hmm. to homelessness is permanent housing, by which I mean subsidized rental apartments without any kind of formal time limits. That can come in a few different forms, but for the most part, that's what they're trying to get to. Housing, housing, housing is the solution to homelessness. Basically, housing as a right. Right. I mean, that's part of the language of it, at least. Um, For some people, yeah, they use that that kind of um, language. But um, they have a few different ways of making this argument. And they've, you know, came out since the the debate has been with us since the early 1980s. And I try to push back on that a little bit, try to explain the kind of complicated nature of homelessness, how certainly permanent housing needs to be a solution for some homeless people, um, but not all or even most, and talk about at the end, you know, other things we can think about if we want to at least manage homelessness, improve the situation, if not end homelessness. Because I don't think it's realistic to talk about an end to homelessness, unfortunately, anytime soon. So let's break it down and let's start with... um how we got to where we are. One of the books that had a big influence on me, God, it must be 25, 30 years ago now, was uh, Madness in the Streets, the book about the, which made the point at the time that the deinstitutionalization, which was driven by legitimate horror stories of abuses and whatnot, was one of these bipartisan screw-ups where Republicans wanted to stop spending money on it, Democrats, and particularly the serious left, kind of influenced by Thomas Zaz and this idea that mental that mental illness was a myth. They sort of combined forces to unleash these people. And as we were saying before we started, I grew up in New York. I was born in 1969. I grew up on the Upper West Side. And I remember all of these, every summer or every spring, these sort of migratory hordes of Thorazine-addicted homeless people were let loose because they were no longer in danger of freezing at night is how much well you tell me where do you think this problem what what are the origin story of this problem in in the late 70s and early 80s 
America's public mental health care system, up until like right after World War II, was mostly constituted of these massive state hospitals, originally known as asylums. Right. They were all run by mostly run by state governments. Um, this is a system that um, they, they killed hundreds of thousands of people in these facilities. Um, it was built. It was developed in the um, the 19th century in response to a problem that state governments then had on their hands of high numbers of mentally ill people in poor houses and jails. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little bit familiar to us. Yeah. Um, in response to that, uh, disgrace. Um, these mental health advocates, such as the most famous of whom was a woman named Dorothea Dix, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, um, shamed state governments in creating these asylums in the late 19th century. And by the standards of the time, um, they provided actually a relatively high level of care in some cases. Unfortunately, the census at the state asylums just kept going up throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, just up and up and up. You mean the population? Yeah, Yeah. the population, the patients, um, until it reached at its peak in the 1950s, 560,000 people. Wow. And so for a number of reasons... We decided to phase out that public mental health care system, which was focused almost exclusively on inpatient care and try to connect people with the mentally ill with treatment in the community, mostly on an outpatient basis. Just a real quick informational question. Um, How easy was it to get out of one of these hospitals once you got in one? Well, they really did try to care for people, to treat people, even though this was a time when they didn't have antipsychotic medications. They, In fact, there were scandals that they were kind of inflating their success rate of curing people. Um, But a lot of people did stay for a very long time, and certainly it was easier easier back then to commit somebody on an involuntary basis to a state psychiatric center than it is now. One way to think about this deinstitutionalization processes. I kind of think of this as kind of like the Dixie Cup model of social social policy making in America. We had this system. It wasn't working very well. There were scandals associated with it. But instead of trying to like reform it and kind of just stick with the same system basically but on an improved basis, we decided to just blow up the asylum system mm-hmm. and embark on this you know, you could say noble experiment of care in the community, but which I think anybody would have to agree has been has failed far beyond its um, its architects. Well, it failed relative to what its architects expected of it. Yeah, I mean, another downside of it is it, it in part, gave us Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> well, the, yeah, Geraldo was focused on the problem of um, developmental disabilities, what we used to call retarded people. They were, which these there were these kids in this home in, in Willowbrook, and he right. had this expose. Uh, you know, we we relied on institutions, also in the case of orphanages, as opposed to foster care. Mm-hmm. For a variety of social policy challenges, we used to have an institutional response, and we drew back from that across a number of fronts. In the case of developmental disabilities, it's worked out better than than the mentally ill. Um, but in the case of the mentally ill, by the mentally ill, by the way, I think what we're talking about here, the seriously mentally ill, not people with anxiety, um, who are unhappy, um, mild depression, but pe- the 4 to 5% of the adult population with schizophrenia, bipolar depression, these are the people who would have probably received long-term care in a state asylum back in the day. But now, because we've reduced our bed count by over 90% since the 50s, you know, we try to connect them with care in the community, but in so many cases, it really doesn't work out very well. So, so before we move on, can you give me a, just a sense of the numbers, right? The number of our best guess of how many are homeless are homeless families, how many are mentally ill, how many are, how much is it increased, not increased? 
Just a, a, a sort of a statistical sense of what the problem is and how it's gotten worse. Well, in the case of um, – well, the first thing that I want to say about the numbers, when you read articles that say we have this many homeless people in D.C. and San Francisco and New York City, that's only an estimate. Right. We don't know with any certainty in any city how many ho- people are living on the street, the unsheltered homeless population. Um, we do annual counts. Those are estimates I myself have participated in a number of times in the annual New York City count. which we call the hope count. Um, That's a one-off count. We do it once a year. Some cities, it's not even that frequently. Um, What's the methodology? You just show up where homeless people are and count heads? Well, you uh, round up a bunch of volunteers Uh and at the direction of, you know, probably city officials, you're you're sent out in an area that's known for having, yeah, a high degree of a high amount of unsheltered homelessness. And by the way, it's usually done in the winter because it's it's thought that you only that way count the really hardcore cases because in the summer, more people are out living sleeping in, in the streets but in the winter so it's and w- so when any article cites a number they're relying on the winter estimate mm-hmm. of what volunteers came up with that year i mean we do the best we can um are no, the only really accurate numbers we have about unsheltered homelessness only exist for about 10 years or so mm-hmm. when we really started doing this uh, in exchange for federal aid cities have to do this so we have numbers going back to about 2007 but before that you know, there were there are occasional one-off estimates. Uh, you know, some scholar would get a grant to do a count, but ongoing counts, on especially on a community basis, only go back about ten, fifteen years. But according to the estimates, at least the the problem's gotten worse. Well, unsheltered homelessness numbers. I mean, I don't go. I I I think we're just beginning to get a sense for unsheltered homelessness estimates. Mm-hmm. In some estimates, some people will say that the numbers have been going down, but I think the numbers are really, um, especially in terms of unsheltered, as opposed to by sheltered homelessness, we're talking about people who are in emergency shelter programs, something like that. Those numbers do not show the same decrease in some cases that the unsheltered count does. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think that the unsheltered count, there's just so many ways in which. They're not reliable enough to really give confidence to the idea that we are reducing homelessness. Some progressive advocates, because they support the policy that's in place, which we can talk about a little bit later to address homelessness, mm-hmm. believe that we've got the problem on the run. But I think if you talk to – I mean let's just – just to take a step back and you talk about you know the ordinary city dweller – it's very rare to hear anybody say, yeah, you know, we used to see a lot of vagrants around the train station. Now it's just they're all gone. I guess we got that situation under control. And if you go back, you know, 30, 40 years to the days of the urban crisis, mm-hmm. um, as bad as like the 60s and 70s were, you saw less of the um, – less of the hardcore street homelessness, the mental, mentally ill-related homelessness than we do now. There was a time when living in a city, this was not kind of your ordinary urban experience, but now we just sort of take it for granted. That's life. You live in a city, you encounter mentally ill vagrants on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, it, it, again, personal recollections and nostalgia are factors here, but growing up, 1970s, early 80s were very bad in terms of homelessness from my recollection. And then it seemed like there was this uh, improvement under Giuliani and then Bloomberg, but I'm totally open to the idea that, that that they were just swept out of areas of Midtown Manhattan where I might have seen them. 
and they may not have actually solved the problem. They just put it at like juking the stats and the wire, right? You're, well, not, you're not fixing the problem. You're just making it, you're hiding the problem. We can certainly, New York City has very actor, accurate numbers for its shelter system. New York has this massive uh, network of emergency shelters. It costs $2 billion a year to run. The amount that New York City spends on homeless services is like within shouting distance of how much the federal government spends wow. on homelessness um, assistance programs. And so they, in some ways, it's a sophisticated system. In some ways, they were early building up a response earlier than um, other cities. We do have good data. The result is that we do have um, good data on New York City going back to the early 80s, at least in terms of the sheltered homelessness. And on the single adult side and the family side, you really see just a steady march up and up and up. Some years, maybe they get a temporary um, reduction, maybe temporarily at plateaus, um, maybe because they're moving some of the shelter clients out to permanent housing arrangements. But you know, I, I'm a big admirer of Mayor Giuliani. I'm a big admirer of Mayor Bloomberg in terms of what they did in crime, public education, economic development. And they did they did do some good things mm-hmm. in homeless policy, some things that I certainly think I would have supported at the time and that I um you know, I just think we're on the right track. But in terms of reducing homelessness, yeah. you know, I think relative to their other policy achievements, it's a little bit underwhelming. Is it possible that because of the urban crisis, you know, you had enormous amounts of white flight, you know, people ran to the suburbs, businesses left that, and you had a lot of, I mean, Times Square when I was growing up was a very dangerous place. And street criminals would prey on homeless people either for fun or profit all of the time. Is it possible that it's a, it's the, it's the dark clouds of the silver lining of fixing the crime problem that all of a sudden it's just not nearly as dangerous to be homeless, and so it's easier for people to camp out in the middle of the street, easier for people to panhandle openly, precisely because it's less likely that they're going to get ripped off than they once would have? Is it kind of an unintended consequence? Yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, uh, people don't like gentrification, but you get gentrification when you get rid of crime. I'm not a big opponent of gentrification, but it seems to me that you could see how criminals in a high crime neighborhood, it would be very dangerous to be vulnerable and out in the open as someone sleeping on the street, panhandling all the rest, because you could see just young toughs and thugs mugging homeless people. They're the easiest people to mug. What are they going to do, call a cop? And so if you get rid of street crime, it seems to me that that creates a more attractive environment for the single adult male panhandler homeless guy to set up shop um, without fear of being harassed. I mean, does that make any sense to you? I don't know. I mean, you know, the broken windows philosophy of public safety says that it's supposed to work the other way around, right. that you address the low-level crime and then the serious crime will also um, go down. There's also just an argument, The the another argument for broken windows is that people like orderly public spaces in addition to, they and they want that in addition to wanting fewer murders. And so New York did try to solve both problems concurrently, reducing serious crime, reducing murders, and reducing low-level public disorder. Um, on one, they succeeded much more dramatically than the other. I think the un- there are certainly a number of unintended consequences you can make mm-hmm. in terms of how we got with homelessness. The one, I think, clearest case is um, urban renewal. Mm-hmm. We used to have 
Essentially, back in the kind of the fifties, we essentially had whole neighborhoods where homeless guys lived. These Skid yeah. Row areas yeah, in New yeah. York City had the famous one, the Bowery on the Lower East Side, and these were、uh, neighborhoods where not only could you have a place to stay, like a just absolute rock bottom price, yeah, flop houses, essentially、uh, the, the flop house. You could easily panhandle enough for a night's stay in a yeah, flop house,、yeah. and if you didn't have enough money for that, you could stay on the sleep on the floor of a mission, and for. And a number of cities had these neighborhoods, but you know, this is kind of the story of housing policy over the course of the 20th century. We didn't want people to live like that.、Mm -hmm. We wanted to revive cities. We we wanted to bring these neighborhoods back to life, and so in various ways, we phased out Skid Row. And so those neighborhoods, such as the Bowery, then received a lot of investment,、um, gentrification. But as a result, you started seeing guys pop up at you know the public libraries、yeah. and parks and other places, which you know vagrants for the most part had not really been a dominant presence. But now you know, I mean, especially public libraries, yeah, it's just like that's their reputation at this point as being a daytime homeless shelter in a number、yeah. of cases. Yeah. So before we get to the public policy thing, there's this just other aspect that I've always sort of found fascinating is the the culture of homelessness in New York City, where I grew up. And we're and in Washington D.C., where I've spent the last two decades or more, so different than the West Coast. And I remember the first time I went to Vancouver, and I've spent a lot of time in Seattle. I've spent a lot of time, a little less time in Portland, good amount of time in San Francisco. And I remember talking to my dad about how it was so different to see so many ostensibly able-bodied young white men. Who were homeless, and they were, and and these days they're particularly aggressive. If you go to Portland, they harass you and give you a hard time if you don't give them money. If you give them money, and one of the points that my dad made was, you know, it's kind of always been more like that because that was the end of the line of all the railroads, whether it's Vancouver or San Francisco、yeah. or Portland, and that whole hobo tramp culture. That's where they got off the train, and because of the weather there, it was always just sort of easier to live. And it became a kind of subculture that was always much more toler tolerated. And you know, some of these guys would go and they would do day labor work for people, but they would really just sort of be drifters. And in New York, you, there's not a lot of day labor that you can do, right? You know, or in DC, these guys seem much more chronic, much more likely to be truly mentally ill. Not that there aren't mentally ill people, homeless people, on on the West Coast, but it does seem to be different. That it was a much more of a Drug addiction, mental illness, fall falling through all of the cracks of civil society, kind of thing.、Um, does that show up in data, or is it just a anecdotal kind of thing? Well.、Uh I mean, well, the most obvious difference between those West Coast places in New York and even DC is the weather.、Mm -hmm. I mean, if places which have harsh winters have far lower rates of unsheltered homelessness than、yeah. California, Florida, it is true、uh, that the old Skid Row neighborhoods often emerged around、um, rail yards、yeah. or just places where, yeah, there、um, docks there too, lots of opportunities for day labor.、Yeah. This is something that I would, at some point, try to, like to figure out how to do. More research about it's very clear. I think that housing regulation leads to homelessness.、Mm -hmm. Make housing more unaffordable for poor people. 
Right. Some of them are going to wind up in shelter on the streets. It's possible that labor market regulation played a role as well. Um, in those old Skid Row neighborhoods, you could, you know, if you wanted to find a job just like unloading trucks for the day. Right. If it was a good day for you as opposed to a bad day for you when you were on a bender, then you could have easily find those opportunities. Um, it's probably illegal immigration may play some role in all that too, right? Because you can go to the Walmart parking lot or the whatever and, or the Home Depot parking lot and pick up guys who you know are going to be good day laborers who, to the extent they can, care about their reputations, which is going to be a little different from guys who might be drug addicts that you're not going to trust. It is true that the jobs that illegal immigrants do are the jobs that Skid Row guys right. would have done in the past. You know, and I mean, another way to put it is, you know, if you, if you have an addiction to alcohol, you can't, you're not ready for a 40 hour a week job, yeah. but maybe you can Tell work. Tell me about a, it. You, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> and you, you, uh. You can work, but you can work a few days a week. Mm-hmm. But how do you find a job that can accommodate that kind of situation? I mean, now we have you know programs for people and yeah. you know treatment programs and stuff for the supported employment and so forth. But that's this is these were these were jobs that just like you know essentially the private sector um, provided because it had a need for that type of labor. Um, so you know these old these Skid Row neighborhoods they were complete neighborhoods. I mm-hmm. mean, all your needs could be not. It wasn't just the SRO housing that you could find jobs, pawn shops, bars. And so forth. Um, so you could – they were it, – it's, it, it's paradoxical to call something a community made out of homeless people, but that's basically what they were. Yeah. Okay. So is it wrong to f- ask the question, what is the main driver of homelessness or are they, like, they, they, are they different tracks, uh, different lanes of problems, right? I, mean, I assume family homelessness is very different than mental illness homelessness, which is probably different than drug addiction, even though the Venn diagram of drug addiction and mental illness is a big overlap, yes. right? Well, you know, the progressive argument that this is a housing, housing, housing prob- problem is not completely misleading. I mean, that's – I think in terms of the numbers, most of it can be accounted for by the fact that rental housing has become extremely difficult to find for very low-income people mm-hmm. in places – especially in expensive markets like New York City. Places near work. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, New York City, we don't we, – we used to have all these debates about housing quality, you know, going back to the tenements and well up until throughout the 20th century. But co- conditions of housing quality – housing quality has improved a sure. lot over the decades. And so now we just debate affordability and the quality issue is, is far less salient than it was. So – you know, that's the choice we made. We wanted to improve housing quality and we succeeded. But as a result, so, um, you know, unless we can figure out a way to develop more um, rental housing that's available to that's affordable to low income people, government programs try our current mayor, in New York City, Bill de Blasio, his big issue is housing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, government funded subsidized housing programs are just they're, they're kind of chasing the dragon because for the same reason that it's so expensive for the private sector build, it also becomes very difficult for the government um, to build it as well. And especially if you're talking about for very poor people and not like moderate income people, right. which is, by the way, who, who are getting a lot of the rental housing that de Blasio is building. So, you know, at some you're going to have to figure out a way to, 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 to build more housing and to ensure that that housing is accessible to very low income people. And so on the mental health side, what's to be done? And the, what's the extent of the problem? I mean, the mental we have health a number about how much of it? Yeah, you know? the men, mental illness, it's somewhere between, let's say, 25, a quarter to a third of the problem. And again, that serious 
mental illness. So this is this is a population that's four to five percent of the adult population, but between twenty five percent and thirty three percent of the homelessness problem. And the problem there with mental do mentally ill people need housing? Yes, I mean they they have a disability. They can't they can't work. We need the government needs to provide them with housing. But you have this problem that they people sometimes refer to as service resistance. That you know, I mean, you mentioned earlier that book. Um, Madness in the Streets, you know, these stories that continued to, that started to recur in newspapers in the 80s and continue to come up of people who had been living on the streets, they were known to the system, years of efforts by outreach workers tried to connect them with services, they were obviously lost in a delusion, and then one day they they die in a Mm -hmm. very cold night in the middle of January. These these things keep happening, so... It's even harder when you're drug addicted, right? I mean, if you're... If you're sort of self-medicating the wrong way, I mean, Larry Hogue of 96th Street, the madman on 96th Street, who I remember personally, who was made famous by 60 Minutes, was a perfect example of this, right? Is that he would get high, terrorize people, chase some girl into the street, all that kind of stuff. They'd bring him in, they put him on his meds, and then all of a sudden he's competent, and they have no reason to hold him, so they set him back out, and then he goes and gets crack or whatever it is and terrorizes people again. Yeah, I mean, for me, in terms of the, the solution to the mental illness, you know, we the pendulum swung way too far in the case of deinstitutionalization. We are still to this day reducing beds and pushing on the the effort to connect people with outpatient care and reduce the use of inpatient care. Now, even decades after we realize, gee, it's, it's kind of hard to connect somebody. Yeah. Um, so I at some you know at some point we're going to have the discussion about. You know, moving back in the opposite direction, uh, making it easier to commit some people to inpatient care against their will, and also just increasing the stock of beds. They've been reduced. There's the legal problem. Then there's a problem of just resources capacity. Right. The public mental health care system are cu- just cut, still cutting away their beds because it's expensive. They don't want to do it this way. So, um, but at the moment, politically, it's very difficult to find support for that. I have to say. So I. Respond to this as you will. I have um, I have a fixation. You know, I talk about this a lot on this podcast. I, I'm very much in the Ben Sass camp that our real problems in the society are have to do with a breakdown of civil society, have a breakdown to do with the mediating institutions, breakdown of family, and all the rest. And one of the ways I always sort of a heuristic I kind of sometimes use is um, you know you'll hear people say every now and then you know be grateful because you could be homeless tomorrow. And the reality is I can't be homeless tomorrow. I have so, – I'm not bragging, but it's just a fact. I have a lot – forget my financial capital. Let's say I'm wiped out financially. I have a lot of social capital. I have family I could live with for years if I truly needed to. And then it would put my wife and daughter up. You know, um, I have friends that would let me use their couches or a spare bedroom for years, right? And it seems to me that – all, I'm sort of really interested in looking at the downsides of capitalism these days, even though I'm, I'm a rah-rah capitalist. It seems to me that the, 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 a big chunk of the homeless problem, whether it's family homelessness, homelessness mental homelessness, and even to a certain extent the drug addiction and homelessness, is a, is a, the big, a, a big driver of it is the breakdown of the civil society component, where these things used to be taken care of by social networks to a certain extent. And, and so like, uh, for me to be homeless tomorrow, you know, would require almost a trading places like conspiracy where, yeah. you know, they, they just try to turn me into the Dan Aykroyd character. Isn't at the end of the day, I mean, one of the reasons why this is so hard to fix is because those are the real problems 
to a large degree, yeah, I'd say yes. You know, um, sometimes homeless advocates have made these arguments that you know, there but grace of the there but for the grace of God, any of us could be in that situation. But I think most people don't find that particularly convincing because we have a social safety net that can catch us if the, we have an economic problem or a problem with our housing. There's situation. also character lo- the, characterological insurance. Yes. That- I'm willing to work humiliating jobs to provide yeah. for my family if I have to. Yeah. Right? Even in the old days of Skid Row, the sociologists referred to those guys as disaffiliated. They were living kind of outside society. So yeah. they were like really fascinating kind of specimens for sociologists to study because they weren't part of a family. They weren't part of civil society. And that problem never went away. We just added on to it. Certainly family breakdown, the rise of the single parent family. In New York City, most of the homeless population, around 70%, as I recall, according to the recent, most recent figures, um, is families with children, and those are almost all headed by a single mother. I mean, it's just right. unsustainable to try to you know, provide for your kids and work and afford the rent in New York City if there's just one of you and not not two parents. Um, you would, we, and, um, there are uh, cases in New York City in some poor immigrant communities, such as the Asian um, community, who have very substandard living conditions, very crowded living yeah, conditions. Yeah. New York's um, Asian population is relatively poor. Um, in fact, they have a higher crowding rate than other, um, other populations, but... They are able to put up with it and deal with it, kind of like the immigrants of the past, Mm -hmm. um, and overcome those um, housing issues and still work their way up the ladder. Um, other populations, it doesn't work like that. I will say in the case of the mentally ill, that's there's sort of an exception to that. The family traditionally were not responsible for caring for their seriously mentally yeah, ill. No, they were committed to an institution maybe in their late teen, early 20s, and they, in some cases, were there for the rest of their yeah. lives. I certainly feel like the bipolar types. That was yeah, yeah, and right. sometimes people say, you know, families have become the new asylums because they have um, so much, because they're forced to do what the old asylums did. But, um, yeah, the these are um, in cases in which, you know, for the most part, you know, whether you're talking about the family problem, the, um, the problem of people with mental illness, um, um, there is a big social aspect to this homelessness challenge that a lot of people don't want to talk about for philosophic reasons, but also, frankly, is difficult to kind of fold into a policy response if that's what we're talking about. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, you know, one of the points I keep harping on is um. There's a lot of economic research that says that there's a, uh, an, a, an equivalent or greater premium or benefit for – to getting married as there is to going to college. But as like Tyler Cowen and other people talk about, there is something about the sort of secular, non-judgmental ethos of academics, policy people that they love to talk about things like how important it is to go to college – but none of them would be caught dead talking about, oh, you got to do something as bourgeois as getting married and staying married, right? And so there's – it seems to me that that's always the the dog that doesn't bark in a lot of these debates is that the bourgeois value part matters an incredible amount and, and, and the sort of traditional norms of civil society matter an incredible amount. And if you don't have that component, you're going to be dealing with the the downstream consequences of that and you're going to think – sort of like the the, guy, the drunk who only looks for his car keys where the light is good. If you think it's purely a public policy thing about jiggering housing and zoning and all these things, which I think are important, but you don't play into the cultural part, you're going to miss a big component of it and it's more likely you're going to have unintended consequences. 
Uh, yes, I agree with that. You know, but it, it is a debate that's dominated by, you know, policy people, scholars, um, people who worked in government, you know, people who essentially paid to work for advocacy organizations. And um, it gets exhausting in any policy debate, whether you're talking about K through 12 public education, homelessness, to be the guy always talking about character, bourgeois right. values. It requires a lot of, you know, patience and fortitude, as Mayor LaGuardia um, used to say, to, to be to, to be that voice when other people are think that they're talking about real things. Right, what, right. what can we do in this year's budget? You know, what can we modify in terms of our policy pro- programs? Maybe they'll give you a seat at the table or something or a seat on a panel, maybe. Yeah. But um, there's a way in which they don't feel like you're talking about something concrete. You're, you're the one dealing in abstractions. Yeah. And they're the one trying to. And if you want to have some influence in the policy debate, you know, you ha- you do have to play ball. Right. You have to bring policy to the policy fight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the challenge, you know, bringing to bear, I think, in any of these social issues, bringing to bear questions of values, family structure, character, while, while also not getting lost in what seemed to so many people like abstractions. Yeah. yeah I think that's fair. So we'll get to the policy part in a second. But one of the things I love about the Manhattan Institute is you guys historically been really good about sort of bringing a little public choice argumentation to this stuff. Um, not maybe not, you know, like teachers unions, people talk about education policy, the self-interestedness of teachers unions historically was not really brought, made part of the equation or part of the argument. And one of the great things the Manhattan Institute has done is sort of focus on the role of public sector unions who very often are arguing for their own self-interest and they're masking it as being for children or, you know, even police unions can be part of the problem, but they get to hide behind this sort of domestic equivalent of patriotism where they're the ones on the front lines and they're the first responders. Who are, and I'm not trying to ask you to demonize anybody, but in terms of the sort of the cynical interpretation of homelessness, like, like yeah, who, what are the forces that are making arguments and proposing policies that they have skin in the game for is there a is there a profit motive somewhere or a political motive somewhere that needs more exposure well and if there's not that's great i'm not trying to force you into a position that you don't have. i don't want to disappoint you but uh, i mean <laughs> i want a villain I think, I think that there are in in any um you know going back to the war on poverty people have always talked about something like the social services industrial complex sure um, when government spends money to address poverty, government often doesn't know who to give that money to. So right. it gives it to community organization, nonprofits who are cloaked in kind of noble rhetoric. Um, poverty industry, as it were. Yeah. And yeah. who um, – but as far as – but, you know, their result – but then the poverty never seems to get any better. It's just, right. Yeah. Um, and these the, the numbers just keep growing. I, I think there are people – there, so there are certainly people who say there are there are homeless services organizations who don't really want to solve the problem because if we solve the problem, then they'd be out of business. Right. There are people who say that. I don't. Do you run into people that you actually suspect that is true of, or is that kind of a? Well, I guess the, the difficulty I have with that argument is um, the main difficulty is I don't think any of these organizations really could flip a switch and end homelessness if they right. if they chose to do that. I mean, I don't think anybody could do that. And also, I. You know, I know some of these people and I think that 
the way I would kind of I, I, I would turn it around and look at it more from kind of like I guess a charter school perspective, where uh-huh. charter schools are also government contractors, mon- nonprofits that we give money to to advance, you know, a social end who, that we like, and many of which do terrific work. And there are essentially those equivalents in the homeless services world. You have to look for them, but you know those. These are some of the these are some of the groups that I've learned the most from in my research about homeless services. I think that you know, for example, when you you read journalistic accounts of of, of homeless crisis in Seattle or San Francisco, um, the, the journalists make a big effort to talk to actual homeless people to kind of establish their street credibility mm-hmm. because they want to do real journalism, and that's great. You know, they if I. Interview. If you interview somebody who's been shooting heroin all day and living in a tent, then yeah, you want to use that in your article, of right. course. But that's not always the most in- useful perspective. I think a, a perspective that's often missing in those articles is the high-quality social service providers, the kind of charter school equivalent mm-hmm. for homeless services who have a lot to say. There's an organization in New York City called the Doe Fund. I know um, Arthur Brooks at AEI is a big admirer of this organization. He's written about it in some of their – which works with you know men coming out of prison who are – they don't. They're, they're. They want to. They're employable. They just don't have the work history. They they don't have behavioral health problems. Um, they just need help um, to avoid homelessness and advance up the um, up the ladder. So I don't. I'm not the biggest. I don't place as much emphasis on the poverty industry sure. problem in talking about this issue. But I know what you mean when you're talking about teachers unions. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Right. And look, there are many people in teachers unions who do care passionately about kids and want what's best for the kids and the, but there's also there's an inherent tension there about what is best f- for the teachers versus what is best for the kids right and we don't need to dwell on rubber rooms and all of that but okay so what is to be done not to paraphrase vladimir lenin well i think you know so just a Trail off the last point. Um, find the good social service. First of all, you know you're going to have to spend money to address this problem. I think government is the solution. It's going to ha- it's going to have to be. Um, I don't think you can just leave this as kind of to, to like charities, mm-hmm. you know, religious organizations. Um, is it true though? I mean, this was a huge argument in the '90s, you know, um, and also under George W. Bush, the armies of compassion and how religious institutions, which demand more from people, actually get more than sort of bureaucracies and all the rest is the role of these sorts of of those sorts of institutions do they have better results worse results um i don't know i don't know a lot of um high quality like the salvation army used to be into this stuff yeah um um i i don't know i don't know i mean one thing that i would say to connect to something you were saying earlier when you talk about good um, homeless services providers essentially what they're trying to do is knit civil society back together they Mm -hmm. create these kind of cultures right Amongst these, you know, homeless guys who have had a rocky past um, and create a kind of brotherhood in which they all support themselves in their sobriety and their industriousness um, and in their efforts to get out of homelessness. They create that Mm -hmm. um, where it didn't exist before. Um, So that's, you know, getting somewhere to what you're asking Mm -hmm. about the religious organizations. But, you know, what, what works? Well, well, this is kind of a punt, but I think that in the case, if, 
operating on the charter school model, you know, you, you give, you pay your nonprofits to address the problem, you monitor results, you support the programs that do better than others, but you understand that these organizations have a big role to play and just get behind them. Mm-hmm. If they're just doing a good job. And even if you can't exactly understand why they're so good right. and it's not replicable or scalable, mm-hmm. you know, that may be the best we can do mm-hmm. in some areas. I think you really need to draw back from the reflexive um, permanent housing solution. And I mean, I just emphasize this because in the homeless policy debate, it's just so dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you talk for just a minute about why it doesn't work? Well, it, it it does work in the sense that it can keep people off the streets. You can transfer someone to a shelter from a shelter to what we call a permanent supportive housing program. If they get a private room, their name on the lease, they will. That's that's true. They will leave the shelter. They'll go into this other form of government dependence. And so you can say you've reduced homelessness by one person. However, if that that doesn't say anything about whether or not they're actually becoming self sufficient, um, whether they're treat, dealing successfully with their mental illness problems. It just means they are, quote, stably housed. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about the success of permanent um, housing programs, it mostly means they've been stably housed. But that's a really low bar to Mm -hmm. clear, I think, when we're talking about, for the most part, we're trying to get to self-sufficiency for for most of the homeless people, you know, get your, you know, become sober, move up, move up the ladder. Um, The same expectation we have for, you know, an ordinary person. And I think so and looked at in that respect, I think some kind of temporary housing program is a more logical response to the problem, even if it doesn't mean the person is necessarily stably housed Mm -hmm. by definition. It's more in accord with, I I think, the, you know, certainly bourgeois values Mm -hmm. um, than the than the long-term dependence on a rental subsidy solution is. And I don't, I'm not asking this because it's a, I'm just trying to come up with some crazy comic book solution kind of thing. But is there, you know, so my brother was, had a drug problem and I've known a lot of people who've had drug problems. And one of the things, you know, they tell you when you're in recovery is get out of your old circles, Yeah. right? We saw there was a lot of, maybe it's anecdotal, I didn't study it, but there were a lot of stories about how a lot of the people who moved out of New Orleans after Katrina and moved to Houston actually just did better because they were out of this sort of cultural psych- cyclical problems. Is there any talk about moving these populations to someplace, you know, having some sort of grand bargain with, there are a lot of mid-sized cities around America. I can understand why there'd be enormous nimbyism, but is there, you, it's going to be very difficult to create large scale extreme low-income housing in, on the island of Manhattan or in New York City. But I don't know that that's true in West Virginia, let's say, for the sake of argument. Is there some – is anyone sort of talking about just a radical sort of let's create a new internal colony where you actually have the space and the affordability to change things? I mean, I think if there are cases in which you have a kind of a civil society in place in that place already, or a family that will receive that person that they can then yeah. move into that situation, then yeah, cities absolutely do that. Mm. But, you know, that you could kind like of... Like give them a bus ticket and say, we're going to send you back to your family kind of thing? Cities, yeah. New York yeah. City certainly tries to do that. Yeah. yeah. You know, but there have been efforts. I don't know if transplanting someone somewhere else um i I don't want a gulag that's not what i'm talking about you know but it just seems to me i mean 
the the, the old it, it would also re- remind a lot of people of an institutional type yeah. response we are you know you 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 called it nimbyism but also you know a lot the, the old asylums were often outside cities that right. were in a kind of rural area and so the the the, the, the idea is that this problem was out of sight out of mind or that's what the critics viewed it as and so there's a Which way is why they're so scary now in horror movies because they're abandoned out in the woods somewhere <laughs> yes yeah um yeah there's um yeah the um the ruin porn um aspect of it i mean we allowed them to decay so of course right. they look just like we allowed the city of detroit to decay so right it, of course it's gonna look bad but um in in there's a big emphasis in substance abuse policy circles towards for a harm reduction approach mm-hmm. meaning you can't you can't expect sobriety of everyone you want to kind of draw them in gently into the system so you give them a place to stay which does not require them to be and you don't submit them to drug testing in hopes that eventually they will come around New York City, this is a big issue right now because we're trying to cite what they call supervised injection facilities, um, in addition to the, all the homeless shelters we're having, having mm-hmm. to cite and, you know, housing, mental health housing, um, supervised injection facilities. We got to plop in some neighborhood too. You know, it's, it's a, it has a lot of support in mm-hmm. progressive circles, but there's a real question about whether those programs actually do move people eventually into sobriety. Mm-hmm. Because again, if you're trying to, cre- you know, creating a kind of, support network of people who are all working on this program together you know like an aa group um that's a very different thing than allowing people to live with other people who are actively using yeah uh, on site um that's creating a different kind of network so um reforming bonds or just creating bonds that didn't exist before um really requires delicate work if you're talking about doing it through policy so here's a question. It's funny I'm bringing this up. Uh, I used to produce a super wonky television show for PBS 20 years ago called Think Tank. And we did at least one episode on homelessness. And I remember afterwards the host, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, was kicking himself because the one question he wanted to ask, he didn't ask. So this is sort of in his spirit. Should people give money to homeless people on the street when they ask for it? I mean, I, I, I'm not talking about for the sake of their own soul, but as a public policy matter, are you helping the problem? Are you hurting the problem? If 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 you do that, do you have any rule of thumb about picking and choosing who you would give money to a panhandler and who you wouldn't? Is it just a blip on the public policy aspect of it one way or the other? I would never blame anybody um, who, for religious reasons or just moral reasons, feels like they really need to give money to a homeless person. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say, well, what you should do is give it to, you know, a quality nonprofit provider. Well, okay, that's true. But, you know, five bucks probably means a lot more to that homeless yeah. person than the high quality nonprofit provider. We're not getting any farther to a policy solution. There is a way in which you may be making it easier for that person to stay on the streets Um, than to move out of that situation. But I think when we talk about how we need to kind of orchestrate that those incentives, that's where I think we need to be talking more about what government should be doing, what institutions should be doing. Um, I don't feel like I necessarily need to like lecture people about how they're really, you know, hurting people when they think they're helping them. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of virtue signaling to it, of course. But you know, look, on Capitol Hill, where Fox News is, so I'm up there a lot because I'm a Fox News contributor, and I often will hang out at the coffee shop near there. If I give money to one guy and I'm seen doing it, I will be 
five more guys will come up to me, right? And so I generally kind of have this attitude of I'm not going to do it just because of the cascade effect that it kind of has, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I agonize about it, you know, not in a hair shirt kind of way, but, uh, and then you get the guys who come up to you and tell you this amazingly intricate story. Yeah. And I remember growing up on the West side, three days a week, I would run into a guy who was insisting, who didn't recognize me, but I recognized him. It would give me the same story about how he just needs to get some diapers for his kids. And that's sort of a con artist thing. Do you have a sense, you know, in the, Obviously, homelessness is a serious and real issue. I wouldn't have you here if it weren't. But you know, in the in the seventies and eighties, there was a subgenre of sort of muckraking reporting talking about the people who made a really good living as panhandlers. I'm sure that's anecdotal rather than systemic, right? But do you have any sense about how, for some people, this actually is a going livelihood? Um, well, there have been people who uh, – I don't have the uh, information on hand, but uh-huh. certainly there have been sociologists who have as done studies of how much you could make panhandling and lower. Yeah. And there's a Columbia University economist named Brendan O'Flaherty who has actually looked at this and how much you can make doing that. Homeless people do respond to incentives, like all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the weather earlier. Right. There are subway lines in New York City that are known to have more homeless people than others because they stay underground all, all the whole route instead of going up above <laughs> ground so they're warmer. You know, in my article I talk about kind of, you know, thinking about nudge the nudge approach as how you how we should be thinking about addressing homelessness, trying to encourage people into contact with social service organizations of the government because that's the only way we're going to move them out of their situation. I think the, the the main contributors to street homelessness, uh, larger than individuals, are like, you know, like restaurants who make a proud display of the fact that they give away all of their food at the end of the day because mm-hmm. it's all, their food is always fresh because anything they don't sell, they give it away to homeless people. I think that's going to be contributing to street homelessness. And frankly, also, in some cases, you know, um, religious organizations, charities who, you know, hand out sandwiches at a certain known spot every day in a public place have created a lot of difficulties for governments who are tr- actually trying to reduce the problem. Yeah. They're trying to bring those people into shelters, off the streets, whereas those organizations, you know, you can always shame government and be like, well, what have you got? How You know, <laughs> you guys don't seem to be doing very well at this problem. So, right. you know, who are you to say that we're doing the wrong thing here? But it's a difficult conversation to have. When I was um, in college, Mitch Schneider came and spoke. And, uh, you know, there's a homeless shelter named after him. It's one of the reasons why there's so many out by Fox on Capitol Hills. It's about a block and a half away. Yeah, I know who he is, yeah. And um, one of the things that he said, and I think there was a bit of a Abby Hoffman-style grifter thing going on with, with Mitch Snyder, but you can't fault him for dedicating himself to serious causes regardless. But he, he said, and I think it was in part a response to a question I asked him, that if the federal government dropped $3 million in a briefcase unmarked with no strings attached on his front doorstep, he wouldn't take it because he found that any contact with the federal government, the, the, the permanent bureaucracy of the federal government, the strings, the, the meddling, the push for um, metrics that can report you know, yep. stats – were completely contrary to the work that he was doing. As a conservative guy who likes localism and federalism and mediating institutions, I like that answer. I'm not sure I believed him, but I like the answer. What What is the role for the federal government in, if anything, in dealing with homelessness? The federal government has a relatively minor role. Well, 
I mean, in terms of the amount of money it spends addressing homelessness, it's not enormous. It's important to understand that affordable housing programs have a much are not part of a response to homelessness for the most part. Right. Public housing, Section Eight, the, the 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 affordable housing programs that the federal government does go back, have a much different history. And it's actually very complicated. They're kind of two different policy communities and they don't get along even though they're all progressives. <laughs> Is that right? That's interesting. Because the homeless services people think that all the affordable housing should be for their people. And affordable right. housing people say, no, we're trying to create communities and there are a lot of moderate income people who need affordable housing too. Subsidized housing. So, the, but the federal government, although the the amount that the federal government has spends is, I want to say something like below ten billion dollars a year, um, which is not that much in the scope of things. Um, they have a lot of. Uh, they can use that to incentivize local governments to right. move in different directions. So there has been certainly a shift away from um, so-called transitional housing programs towards permanent supportive housing programs in recent years. To some degree, they're just reflecting the policy debate, but also they're they're driving it as well. But when we talk about the policy response to homelessness, you know, it it really begins with just ordinary people wondering why. Why this guy is like, you know, decompensating right in front of them right. on their daily commute, and so you're, that has to be, a, you know, a public safety mm-hmm. response. And, and the local service organizations that are going to have to do something about it are, um, the, well, they're local. So it still is, for the most part, a local government, a challenge that mayors have to deal with far more than federal bureaucrats. So that's what I would say about it. And, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting what you say about Mitch Snyder and the kind of anti-bureaucratic response. I mean, one of the things that you learn when you study, you know, poverty, social policy is that people – you it's often people at the lowest end of the income spectrum that have the most anti-bureaucratic attitudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because when they have to deal with these – or they, they just – they think they're they're – petty yeah. their rules are meaningless they're not they're they're counterproductive or they're not really helping them there's a certain amount of condescension that they get from these people yeah far more than you know middle income people who don't have like daily direct contact with with government bureaucrats yeah. like the poor people do but they really are have can, can sometimes be just really anti-government yeah no it's funny i mean that, that was i mean it that was the old line about about the DMV for years. I mean, because in DC, like the only interaction that middle and upper class people had on a semi regular basis with local government was going down to the DMV, and the DMV was horrible. And the, they finally figured out, hey, if you want to get support for the other things that the DC government wants to do, maybe you shouldn't have your only point of contact be such a miserable experience because. Middle-class people would then extrapolate, well, if this is what the DMV is like, it must all be like this. And so now the DMV in D.C. is great. You know, it was a small, almost a marketing change of mind kind of thing. Um, it does seem like if you go out to San Francisco, you go out to Southern California, Portland, these places, you're now seeing essentially these tent cities opening up, right? Which that, that feels new to me. Um, is that just a sort of modern-day, you know, uh, pop-up version of Skid Row? What, what what would you do to deal with those things? They're starting to see a little bit of it here in DC. How what what do you what is the urban response to that or should be to that? You know, the best I can do there was you know you you try to, you you divide up the program. You f- try to develop a mental illness comp mental health response to the mental health component of the problem, um, substance abuse component to the response to the substance abuse component you know you you you, you're going to have to bolster your your homeless services array and if you want to do 
go more kind of public disorder route, public safety route, you have to really get ready for a serious legal fight. This is mm-hmm. something that you need to make up. You're going to have to make a priority of your administration because civil liberties people will fight you mm-hmm. over the most minor changes. You know, it's it'll be another topic to talk about the kind of legal dimension of this. But, you know, a lot of mayors back off just because they can't they don't feel like they can make it this a top priority, like all get, devote all their time to, you know, just minor, minor changes or minor reductions in the tent population yeah. they feel like they have to live with it at a certain point but like in in la they have a they have an outbreak of typhus yeah you know because there's all this public you know defecation and all that kind of stuff and it seems to me that that becomes a big middle class problem very quickly you know it's like out of sight out of mind is one thing but when your dog is bringing home fleas that didn't give your kids typhus. Yeah. You know, that's another thing. And, and, and look, middle class people don't like to be able, don't like it when they can't take the walk with their kids around yeah. downtown areas. I mean, and, you know, one thing that I try to say in my, my articles is just, you know, we need to anchor the response to homelessness in that. You can't develop policy responses to homelessness that just ignore that aspect of the problem. Most people want a solution to this problem, or at least at least they want it to reduce because they think it's shameful. It's mm-hmm. bad for them. It's obviously bad for this person to allow this state of affairs to perpetuate itself. And you know, don't you know? Don't ignore. Don't dismiss that as just you know simple mindedness or you know bourgeois or something. Um, somehow try to anchor the policy response in that attitude. Okay. So so final question because we do need to wrap up. If you could have of all the policy responses, I mean, I I I, I get your argument that you got to got to you got to chop up the problem into its discrete components and different horses for different courses and all the rest. But if you could wave your hand and get one serious reform, um, which one would it be? The mental health stuff. Yeah, uh, that's that's we what we're doing with our public. You know, there's this cliche definition of insanity: doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different response. Um, that's kind of still what we're doing with with our mental illness policy, and we need to you know think more about more intensive forms of treatment for people who are not getting it because otherwise they're just going to rattle around in the streets and the jails. And that would not that would not eliminate homelessness, but it would address the most difficult part of the problem. And the and the ugliest, and I, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it was just, those are the people that make people feel the least safe when they're yeah. around them. They behave in the least decent way for the most part, in an, or hygienic way. So now I'm I'm with you on that. If you could fix zoning, what would you do to zoning? Well, you just housing deregulation means a few different things. It can mean just like letting developers build more. Mm-hmm. But there's also this question about housing quality. Like if you could, if you're willing to allow people to live in kind of shabbier conditions that are currently legally allowed, then you would make housing affordable to some, yeah, you know, low income families. So. That's something because, you know, New York City, we're, a lot of the new housing that we're building is just, you know, only affordable to um, very rich people. Yeah. Maybe someday it'll trickle down to the lower income people, but it's not happening anytime soon. Yeah. So um, um, that's something that we have to talk about. Steve and I, thank you so much for coming in. Um, it's an interesting – it's a topic I've always been interested in, and it's one I don't think gets nearly enough attention. Good luck because I think you have an uphill climb making persuading people, but that's it's a good fight to be in. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. All right. So uh, uh, Steve's left the building, and uh, we're going to – in Parkus, this is going to be in the can, and we're probably going to run it next week. So this is a note from the past for our listeners. 
um, we're going to uh, avoid any um, time-sensitive uh, punditry or anything of the like. I thought it was a really interesting conversation, and I'm sort of really kind of always been kind of fascinated in the subject. I think that this that that the the civil society component of it is really by far the most important thing because it's it's what generates homeless people. You know, I mean the the alienation and deracination and and bad habits of the heart that make so much of homelessness possible um, have their source in dysfunctional family life, dysfunctional communities, and all of the rest. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of the problem as it appears at the end of that process. But if you really want to fix it, I think it's got to start. Um, you got to go back to the source. You know, my only regret is I don't think I explained my point quite as well about the about how the, the decline in crime. Uh, might have made it possible for more homelessness to be visible in the centers of cities. You know, a lot of people, a lot of homeless people were the most brutalized people in New York City in the in the 70s. You had a lot of young toughs and goons who would prey on the homeless and um, sort of like packs of wolves. Uh, you'd have every now and then stories about, you know, horrible people setting fire to homeless people. And in that climate, you could see how Maybe that would keep homeless people from being as visible as they are today. But if you feel like you're going to be totally safe wherever you are, um, it seems to me that it's much easier to be much more visible. I, I, I think I probably didn't explain that point, but um, it seems to me at least intuitively to have something to do with it. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. Uh, the Remnant Pod at gmail.com. Please keep the reviews and comments coming on iTunes. And let us know if you want more or less of this kind of uh, intense wonkery uh, or what you thought about it. Um, I think it's a worthwhile thing to do from time to time. And um, until next time.